Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 77, Only in Catastrophes. Hello everyone, and welcome back. The spring of 1917 was a pivotal time in the Great War. We've seen the entry of the United States, the abdication of Tsar Nicholas, and two major offensives of varying degrees of success. Before moving on in our narrative, we need to talk about what happened to the French army in the wake of the Nivelle Offensive. Beginning on April 29th, the French army was hit by a wave of mutinies, which would not subside until late June. The mutinies would involve some 40,000 men, and plunge France into another national emergency. In this episode, we will start by examining the state of the French army prior to the Nivelle Offensive, before discussing the mutinies in greater detail. To begin, Nivelle's failure was the immediate cause of the unrest, but the French army was already in a fragile state before the attack. As we've discussed in past episodes, little had gone right for France since the start of the war. None of its major offensives had produced meaningful results, and nearly one million men had been lost. Three years of war had taken its toll. Desertion rates were on the rise, as were instances of shell shock and other mental traumas. The Poilu's list of grievances also included the low pay, lack of clothing, subpar food quality, and the wretched conditions at the front. But no issue drew the Poilu's ire more than the complete absence of scheduled leave. In theory, a French soldier was entitled to seven days leave every four months. However, this was rarely granted as cancellations or postponements could be announced at a moment's notice, and neither the government nor military had established a dependable transportation network. Trains set aside to ferry them home were regularly delayed or cancelled, stranding homesick soldiers at stations across the country. Those men hoping for a few days with their families had to make the heartbreaking choice of paying the rest of their trip out of pocket or returning to the front early. Before the Nivelle Offensive, some French soldiers had gone 18 months without proper leave. Despite this, the Poilu was not ready to give up the ghost quite yet. They remained committed to their duty and would fight on for as long as the German occupation remained. But serious questions about France's military and political leaders were being asked. After three years of bitter disappointment and bloodshed, one could not blame the Poilu for believing they were mere pieces in some myopic game. Anyone who dared to look close enough could see that a malaise of cynicism and despair had infected the French army. In the weeks before the Nivelle Offensive, postal censors noted increased complaints about lack of munitions, sustained fatigue, and unimaginative leadership. In the cities, food prices had gone up 92%, whereas wages had fallen 10%. Paris police reported 689 strikes by the spring a notable increase from 98 in the previous year. In January, 400 women staged an anti-war protest in La Mange, which was soon followed up by 100,000 demonstrators taking to the capital streets. Memories of the Sacred Union from 1914 
had long faded into obscurity. Unsurprisingly, Robert Nevel believed his offensive would be the cure for France's ails. For months, he had charmed politicians and generals with his lavish claims of victory. Morale rose sharply as a result, but then fell spectacularly as the disaster unfolded. For the Poilu, what happened on the Chamis des Dames was outright criminal. They described their officers as drinkers of blood, and the attack as fiasco, botched, misfire, butchery, and massacre. In short, the pressures of war had stretched the Paulu to the breaking point. The contract had been broken, and their voices would be heard. The mutinies of 1917 occupy an interesting spot in France's wartime history. Their true scope was not fully acknowledged until French historian Guy Pedroncini published his landmark study in 1967. In fact, there even remains some debate over whether the word mutiny is the correct term to describe what happened. Outwardly, the French never admitted to their true seriousness, opting for terms like collective disobedience or collective indiscipline instead. Within France, however, mutiny was the word of the day. Pétain used it liberally, and many historians like Pedroncini, for example, agree that mutiny is the most applicable term. So then, we should discuss what these mutinies looked like. But before we do, we need to get one thing out in the open first. The mutinies that spring were not part of some global plot, and there was no nefarious group or individual manipulating things from the shadows. The mutinies were largely sporadic, and differed in intensity depending on where and when they took place. In his study, Pedrincini identified four phases of mutinies. Phase 1, from April 16th to May 15th, saw low-level acts of disobedience, ranging from protests to the refusal of orders. Typically, the incidences in Phase 1 were small in scale, and involved a small number of units. Things became more serious in Phase 2. Phase 2 lasted from May 16th to the 31st. The authorities recorded 46 demonstrations over two weeks. Whole divisions were involved at this point. The protests were also more violent, as they began to coalesce around political agendas. Phases 3 and 4 lasted until the end of June. It was during Phase 3 when the crisis hit its highest point. Between June 1st and 6th, a total of 54 divisions across five army groups were involved. Vandalism, destruction of material, and violence against officers was widely reported. The first large-scale mutiny took place on April the 29th, in a dilapidated rest station near Soissons. Located on the south bank of the Aisne, at the base of the Chamis des Dames Ridge, Soissons played an important role during the Nivelle Offensive, serving as a cordon between front and rear areas. As a result, it held depressing connotations for the Poilu. Like Yip, Verdun, and Albert, Soissons was synonymous with the soldiers' plight. Hundreds of thousands of men had marched through, never to be seen again. Soissons was also home to numerous rest camps scattered around its outskirts. Now to call these places camps is a bit of a misnomer. 
These camps were little more than a peppering of tents, full of rats, disease, and overflowing medical stations. The Poilu loathed them, namely because they offered little reprieve from the front, and indiscipline was an ongoing issue. Drunkenness, gambling, and other suspect vices went widely overlooked by military authorities. It should be of no surprise, then, that these camps served as incubators for popular discontent. The first demonstration involved units of 2nd Battalion of the 18th Infantry Regiment. 2nd Battalion had fought in the Nivelle Offensive, and had lost 66% of its manpower in a single day. Given the terrible loss of life, the survivors expected the battalion to be sent away to Alsace for reconstitution. Instead, the battalion was relocated to one of Soissons' derelict camps, and was hastily brought back to strength by a flood of recent conscripts, including a new batch of officers and NCOs with minimal leadership experience. Less than two weeks after its decimation, 2nd Battalion was ordered back to the front. Except this time, the men refused, inadvertently setting off a chain of events that would repeat over the next eight weeks. Instead of forming up, large numbers of men proceeded to riot in the camp. The men threw stones, flipped tables, and chanted anti-war songs. They then raided the alcohol, and spent the rest of the evening drinking in the windswept thoroughfare. Fortunately, no one was seriously harmed, and most of the men had sobered up by morning. Thirteen ringleaders were subsequently arrested and court-martialed. The riot of April 29th was not the start of an orchestrated rebellion among the Poilu, but it did provide a glimpse of what was to come. Three days later, a similar incident involving colonial troops from 10th Army indicated these were not isolated events. By the end of April, it was clear the Nivelle Offensive had failed. And as the scope of the disaster unfolded, France's military and political leadership opted for a change in strategic vision. This entailed making seismic changes to army leadership. Robert Nivelle resigned on May the 15th, and was replaced by 61-year-old Philippe Pétain. The man who saved Verdun was again called to save France in its hour of need. And this was not lost on Pétain, who sardonically quipped, They call me only in catastrophes. Pétain's promotion signaled that France had abandoned the offensive doctrines of Joffre and Nevelle. A national hero for its efforts at Verdun, Pétain had solidified his reputation as a soldier's general. As historian Robert Doughty writes, all of France knew how sincerely and deeply he cared about his soldiers. He was a fierce critic of ambitious offensives, and a firm believer of carefully planned attacks with limited objectives. Perhaps most importantly, the Poilu held him in reverence. They knew he was not going to waste their lives in another costly attack. Upon his appointment, Pétain meticulously set about the urgent project of rebuilding military morale. To do so, he introduced a four-step program, which relied on a combination of carrot and stick, where he would address the Poilu's concerns, but also ensure further discipline was swiftly dealt with. For the carrot part of his strategy, Pétain recognized the Poilu had valid concerns. Leave time was immediately increased to 10 days every four months, 
and field kitchens received larger provisions of fresh fruit and vegetables. He also prescribed weekly meetings between officers and men. These meetings were mandatory, and any officer caught failing to hold them would be punished financially or by loss of rank. Peyton also made good use of the press to communicate his policies to the men. In addition to visiting the front and speaking directly to them, he published a series of articles called Why We Fight, in which he appealed to the Poilu's sense of honor and duty. He stressed the strategic situation and emphasized America's recent addition to the Allied cause would push France to victory. Peyton ended one such article in the following words, quote, France can expect with reasonable confidence a victorious peace that is indispensable to it, and that it deserves because of its heavy sacrifices." End quote. Essentially, the carrot of Pétain's plan was to empathize with the Poilu's grievances. By all accounts, Pétain's efforts on this front were highly effective. As Doughty writes, Pétain's credibility was second to none, and neither Joff, Nevel, or even Foch would have commanded the same level of respect. However, Peyton had to strike a balance between leniency and firmness. So, for the stick part of his strategy, Peyton worked with the war ministry to ensure military tribunals ran efficiently. Peyton was not interested in show trials. He wanted justice to be swift, effective, but also fair. Instead of punishing the collective, this new system focused on individuals which was a pragmatic move given the army's fragile state. Peyton rightly feared that draconian punishments would only feed back into popular discontent. Soldiers convicted under this new regime lost their right to appeal to a higher court, thereby allowing the army to hand out punishments without lengthy delays. During the worst phase of the mutinies, 50% of those tried had their trials within three weeks of their arrest. According to Pedrincini, France convicted 3,427 soldiers under this regime, 554 of which were sentenced to death. But of those 554 sentences, only 54 executions were carried out. By comparison, France would execute approximately 600 soldiers from 1914 to 1918, meaning 10% of France's wartime executions were a result of the mutinies. In all, Peyton's judicial policy avoided wholesale retribution, but it was effective in isolating ringleaders and other problematic individuals. I have pressed hard for the repression of these grave acts of indiscipline, Peyton wrote on June the 18th. I will maintain this pressure with firmness, both out forgetting that it is applied to soldiers who, for three years, have been with us in the trenches and are our soldiers." End quote. It is worth remembering that Peyton's reforms did not fix the mutinies overnight. In fact, the mutinies actually got worse after Peyton's appointment. As mentioned before, the most violent act of disobedience occurred in late May, early June, overlapping with Pedrincini's second and third phases. It was during phases two and three when the mutinies became notably political. On May the 26th, Four battalions from the 158th Division refused orders to return to the front. They expelled their officers and appointed soldiers' deputies, much like the Russian-style Soviets. 
Similar political acts were repeated when men from the 370th Infantry Regiment commandeered a train and tried to reach Paris. Then, in early June, soldiers from the 298th Infantry Regiment captured the commune of Massé-à-Bois, just southeast of Soissons. The mutineers declared a provisional government in direct opposition to Paris, before surrendering after a four-day standoff. These examples lead us to an interesting question. Were the mutinies in France inspired by the revolution in Russia? The answer to this question remains a matter of debate. As we've established, the mutinies were not part of some global political movement. They were born from genuine anger, stemming from three years of mismanagement and an astigmatic misunderstanding of military reality. What we do know is that news of the revolution in Russia had made its way to France just prior to the start of the Nivelle Offensive. Paris was already home to a sizable population of Russian émigrés, including a guy by the name of Leon Trotsky. While both Pétain and Nivelle blamed socialist and anarchist propaganda for France's morale issues, there was little evidence to suggest these publications found widespread traction with frontline soldiers. But here's where it gets more interesting. The most violent mutiny that spring did not involve a French unit. It involved two Russian ones, the 1st and 3rd Brigades of the Russian Expeditionary Force. The Russian Expeditionary Force, or REF for short, was sent to France in April of 1916. The REF was comprised of four oversized brigades of 22,000 men each. It had been sent to France as part of an exchange for French weapons, munitions, and other military supplies. Two of the brigades were dispatched to the Balkans, while the 1st and 3rd brigades remained on the Western Front. As fate would have it, 1st and 3rd brigades took part in the Nivelle Offensive, and lost 4,500 men in the fighting near Reims. Afterwards, 1st and 3rd Brigades became a microcosm of the political unrest in Russia. After the news of the Tsar's abdication made its way to France, the Russian brigades found themselves torn between loyalty to the Tsar and the newly established provisional government. In response, 1st and 3rd Brigades expelled their new officers and formed a Soviet. They demanded to be sent home and openly defied their orders in full view of the French who stood and watched as their allies carried red flags and chanted anti-war slogans. Hoping to avoid further unrest, the French military decided to relocate the Russians to La Courtine, an isolated training camp in the south-central part of the country. As the situation in Russia further deteriorated, so too did the Russian brigades at La Courtine. By the summer, the brigades were kinda sorta divided into two groups. The more conservative 3rd Brigade supported Kerensky's provisional government, while the more radical 1st Brigade supported Lenin and the Bolsheviks. As we discussed in episode 73, the Western Allies, capital D, definitely preferred Kerensky, and were able to leverage this advantage against the Bolsheviks. Working together, French and Russian officers siphoned off the most loyal soldiers and formed a new unit. Armed with French weapons and equipment, this new unit was ordered to encircle the camp, while the remnants of 1st Brigade's Bolshevik faction dug themselves in. To no avail, 
Both sides try to convince the other to abandon their positions. Those inside the camp accuse the loyalists of being bourgeois pawns, while those outside believe the occupiers had been duped by enemy propaganda. The loyalist commander gave the rebels until the morning of September the 16th to surrender, and when that deadline passed, machine guns and artillery were brought forward. When the smoke cleared the following morning, 10 Russians inside the camp were dead, along with 46 wounded. The loyalists had fired 44 shells into the camp, eventually securing the rebels' surrender on the morning of September 18th. The Battle of La Courtine offers a chilling glimpse into the civil violence that would engulf Russia by the end of the year. The French military was careful not to incriminate themselves in the incident. They had supplied the weapons, but it was Russian officers who did the ordering and Russian soldiers who did the shooting. Admittedly, this was an event I myself was completely ignorant of. I have not provided the full story by any means, but if you are interested in learning more, I do recommend Jamie Cockfield's book, With Snow on Their Boots. Cockfield reconstructs the story of the Russian expeditionary force in vivid detail, and as he puts it, the REF was effectively sold for shells. So I do believe we will wrap things here for this episode. Next time, the Americans will begin to arrive on the Western Front. Some are happy about this, while others, well, not so much. Alright, that's a wrap for this episode. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast on Twitter or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 77 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.